Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where, as always, my guests tell me the five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule, four things that they cherish, and one thing they wish they could bury and forget. My guest in this episode is the actor, director, screenwriter, playwright, and author... George Layton, who became famous as Dr. Paul Collier in the Doctor comedy series, Doctor at Large, Doctor in Charge, Doctor in the House, and Doctor at the Top, and also as Bombardier Solly Solomon in the sitcom It Ain't Off Hot Mum, and also as Des the Mechanic in Minder. He's played Norman Simmons in EastEnders and was a presenter on That's Life with Esther Ranson. He's also been in The Likely Lad, Zed Cars, The Liverbirds, The Sweeney and Doctor Who, as well as, for example, Sunburn, Heartbeat, Holby City, Doctors and Casualty. Yep, he's spent a lot of time in a white coat. His theatre work includes plays such as Billy Liar, The Odd Couple, Fagin in Oliver and Feste in Twelfth Night. George started writing for TV with The Doctor Shows, with a former co-star of the show, Jonathan Lynn. Together they wrote for On the Buses, Nearest and Dearest, and My Name's Harry Worth, amongst others. Then Jonathan went off to write Yes Minister, and George wrote Robin's Nest, and then Don't Wait Up, starring Nigel Havers and Tony Britton, as well as Executive Stress, with Geoffrey Palmer and Penelope Keith. So, he certainly knows a thing or two about casting. And finally, George has written three books of short stories. So, as you can see... George Layton has fitted plenty into his very long career. And, as I'm sure you'll discover here, this very youthful octogenarian hasn't finished yet. Here is the extraordinary George Layton. Here we are. Have we ever met? I don't think we have, George. Never, no, we've never had. You know, a very good interview. I was listening to a few, as much as I could. I, I skimmed a bit because to listen to as many, because some of them last an hour, don't they? I know they go on and on, and some of them. So that's good. You can see me all right? Yeah. This is my study, whatever you can see. 
And um, do I edit afterwards if I make a mistake? Or oh, what happens if the phone rings? We're absolutely fine. I've got builders here. If you hear banging, let me know, and I'll I'll get them to do something else. No, it's very relaxed. I spoke to a young bloke from an Australian band, Sam Teskey, and he honestly was sitting in his car with his computer. And, and we just sat and he, he was in his car. Yeah, how amazing. Well, my son-in-law is quite a well-known musician called Beardy Man. Do you know Beardy Man? Yeah, I do, yeah. Oh, well, well you might want to view him. He's a bit yeah. odd. But no, he's lovely. Lovely. Have you ever seen him on YouTube? No, but he's played near here, I think. I know my son's been to see him. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, John yeah. is your producer, isn't he? I just, uh, he is. My son, John, and he produces it. So he's the one who, in a way, takes it away, yeah. George, and, and turns it into something a bit better. You know? Well, that's my son-in-law. He knows him. And he's brilliant on stage. I mean, I, th- I think he's actually extraordinary. And your lovely daughter. Oh, which, my daughter, Hannah. She's amazing. But this is the reason that I'm talking to you, thank goodness. She said, my dad is George Layton, do you know? And I said, of course I know George Layton, yes. He's a very famous actor. And she said, well, perhaps you'd like to talk to my dad. I said, I'd love to. As it happens, I'm, I'm going off abroad filming. Uh, right. So I'm quite excited. But I, I don't do it. So when you've got grandchildren, you can't be away working, can you? No, I know. I've got exactly that quandary. How many do you have? I have four. I've got four too, yeah. <laughs> Lovely, isn't it? Yeah, two from each. And I've got three. Yeah. Two are twins. And then my son, Danny, he was a music supervisor. Uh, he, mm. He's the head of music for Endemol. He's got a two and a half year old as well. We're quite a showbiz family, you know. Yes, you are, aren't you? I think you might know my nephew, Bart Layton, who's a very good film producer. Did, did, you, did you see a film called The Imposter years ago? About the guy in Spain who claims he's a kid from the Midwest. He did one called American Animal. Brilliant. Anyway, Bart Layton. You started a legacy. A dynasty, yeah, yeah. The other side of it is that actually it works both ways. The very fact that they've chosen to go into the, to you know, in a way a similar profession to you, to into your world. Children, quite often with actors, they can go, he was never there. You know, uh, he's an absent father. Balancing family life in your career is really, really hard. Yeah. I think it's one of the hardest things as an actor, and that's why I quite like writing, God forbid there's an emergency, which I've had. I mean, I've actually had to leave a studio once. Fortunately, it was only myself and Barbara Flynn, because mm. you know, the hospital ran said, you want to see your mother come now? I think, oh, my God. Got there, she was eating bloody fish and chips in the bed. But anyway, <laughs> writing is the one thing you're in control of. Do you know what I mean? You say, right, I'm going to stop, you know, but you can't leave a studio. You can't leave a film set, can you? It's, Walk off stage. No. It's an emergency, yes. You can't do that, you know. Well, I can tell you a story about that when I... Okay. Well, look, well, you have these stories. We should start. Let's start. It's lovely to have you on here, George. You've been part of the profession for the whole of my life. Uh, I I left drama school in 1962. There you are. So what's that? That's uh, just 61 years an actor. Good Lord. Yes, it is amazing. amazing. That's amazing, yeah. It was a long time ago. I was at RADA. I left RADA in 1962, armed with £30, £25, was the uh, Emil Little Award for the actor with the most aptitude for the profession, most promising actor kind of thing. Mm. And the other five pounds was the Dennis Blakelock Award. Now, do you remember the name Dennis Blakelock? Yeah. A very, very famous um, radio actor. Mm. And I got five pounds for sort of outstanding in a small part. The ironic thing was I played Latinus in a play called Domitian, and Martin Jarvis was playing Domitian, and I played Latinus, mm. who very queeny actor. And it's actually based it, I based it on Dennis Blakelock and I won the award. Anyway, <laughs> Dennis was, <laughs> was lovely and he's long gone, but, uh, you know, I, I, he was rather a precious, sort of very affected gentleman. But I did base my performance on him, but he, I, mean, I never told anybody, but, I, anyway, but I got the Dennis Blakelock award, five pounds, and it was spent on um, trying to jump the queue at the Crouch End Post Office, whatever it's called, 
to get a telephone. Of course, in you know, in those days, it's not like getting mobiles today. You had to be in a queue to get it. And a telephone was essential for an actor. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I argued that I, you know, I really did need a telephone to launch my career. And uh, I did get it. And I can remember the number, actually. North 6264. Why do I remember that? Because Rada was 6264 Gower Street. Oh, of course, yeah. And I always look for, I mean, I'm a bit OCD. I look for signs like that. Oh, the good omen. Oh, uh, so, we're talking of numbers. So so did you come out and did you straight away join equity? Did you become a member or did you have to get work first? I think I had to get work first. I think I have mm. a probationary period. But I, I, well, the funny thing was, I did work semi-professional, not semi-professional, I think it paid. But in rep before I went to RADA. But I was very lucky. I left RADA in 1962. My first job was at the Belgrade Theatre Coventry. Great. The irony was that while I was at this blooming telephone exchange trying to argue that I should have a telephone, I needed it. I need to jump. Because you couldn't get one. Just like people don't realise now, you, you could wait months. And even then you might have to have a party line. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anyway, I got the telephone. But while I was there, I missed my first job which was funny, at the Belgrade Theatre, and it was going to be an offer from William Gaunt, the actor, who was a very young director as well. I see William occasionally, I think he remembers this. Um, He was wanting to offer me a part in The Amorous Prawn at the Belgrade Theatre Coventry. So long story short, I missed my first job because they couldn't get hold of me. It's a sign that when you came out, lots of people were talking about you. That's not bad, is it? Yes, and then I went to Belgrade Theatre Coventry for my first job, and I suppose while I was there... Um, I must have got my equity card somehow. I can't remember, but I'm still a member of equity. Do you remember your number? Yes, 43722. 43722, which means you were the 43,772nd actor to get an equity card. Really? That's what it means. I'm well behind you. I'm 93669. So I'm 93,000, but I'm before the 100,000 mark. And I think I, now... Thank you, I'm a much younger man. Yeah. Uh, One thing I'm proud of, Mike, if you say, what's your equity number? You ask me what my uh, national insurance number is, and I don't even pay national insurance. I don't <laughs> that off by heart. If you ask me about bank deals, I know all off by heart. If you ask me my very first phone number where I grew up, when my parents had a phone, I can remember that. Bradford 43189. <laughs> when I ring people, not so much the mobiles, because you tend to do that automatically, but if I want to ring somebody on the landline, I don't have to look it up. I'm very fortunate I have a good memory that way, yeah. I think that's a skill that's disappearing because people don't look at the numbers. Absolutely. I can't, I can't remember mobiles. Well, I can some, but um, mostly you just do it automatically. Yeah. From all of that, I mean, I'm glad we've started at RADA, but uh, do you want to take us further back? What would oh, be the definitely. first thing? Oh, no, definitely. We'll, we'll build up to that. Lovely. Uh, so what was the first thing you'd like to put in? Well, I'm going to do a bit of a cheat here. Oh, I listened to David Morris's podcast yesterday, mm. and uh, he said, oh, I found this so easy. Well, I found it very, very difficult. I think I mentioned there's a famous desert island disc where Elizabeth Schwarzkopf told all her own, you know, all about her. <laughs> and I yeah. fear that this might be all about me. Uh, but believe me, I mean, I could fill it with just the things of my kids, you know. I mean, I cannot throw away a birthday card, a Father's Day card or anything. I, it's all there. In fact, one of my short stories I wrote is exactly based on this woman clearing her husband's things out mm. so quickly. You know, you think, oh, God, you know, where's the sentiment? But I'm very, very sentimental. But this is where I'm starting. I'm a child of the 50s. Well, I was born during the war. And uh, I remember gas masks. I remember bomb sites. I used to play on the bomb sites. So I do remember a lot. And I'm very lucky, if I can just give a bit of background, I'm the first Englishman to be born in my family. My parents were Viennese refugees. 
Right. Yes, my grandfather's a famous doctor, quite famous doctor, contemporary of Freud. He got out in 38, but my parents, Edith and Freddie, were living in Prague. That's where he was working. And my older brother, Peter, give him a quick plug, Peter Layton is certainly the best glass blower in Europe. So he's a glass blower. So Peter Layton Glass, that's my commercial. So he was born in Czechoslovakia, in Prague. And I'm so lucky they went to Bradford eventually. And I was mm. up in Bradford. So I'm the, I'm a first Englishman in the family. Did they get out because they foresaw what was coming? It's a, it's a mystery to me and my brother how they got out. My parents, yeah, they, oh, they did. My grandfather got out in a very curious way. I can't go into detail now, but it's talk about fate. I mean, I feel I have a, 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 a guardian angel looking after me. I don't mm. really do. There's various things happened in my life. But I know there's somebody out there looking after me. And I think they were looking after my family because my grandparents got out in 38 in a very obscure way. And something happened where my parents got out and they got on the last train out of Prague, wow. uh, arriving here with nothing. You know. What were they in Prague? What did they well, do? Well, my father, my, curiously, my, my father uh, worked in glass, strangely enough. I don't think he, artistic glass like Peter, my brother, does, but he, he was transferred from Vienna, this firm. Then, because he was Jewish, I think he was sacked, but with a good reference anyway. And my mother was very stylish. I mean, grew up in quite a privileged background, middle class, upper middle class, you know, probably a governess and my grandfather's sanatorium, three sanatoriums in Vienna. Mm. And um, so when they came to England, they became a butler and a maid in a house in Godalming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> actually, to a, to a couple who really were taking them in, like we, we more recently had done with Ukraine, where they got a job as a, like a gardener or handyman, butler, whatever you call it, for a director of a big company. At mm. And um, somehow my, my grandfather... I think he went to St. Thomas's at first, his doctor, and then he went to Bradford and became the city pathologist. His English was never very good. And somehow my mother and father also gravitated to Bradford. I love Bradford. I, I felt very privileged that they chose Bradford. So I love the West Riding. I love Bradford. I love growing up there. I didn't love everything. I didn't like my school. We'll come back to that. Mm. And uh, that's where I grew up. So I was a kid of the 50s, and I loved the radio. I still love the radio. I listen at night when I can't sleep. So my first, shall I go to my first? Um, yes, please, yeah. A friend of mine collects these, all old magazines, and I said, can you lend me a, a 50s Radio Times? And by chance, he had lots of these Radio Times. I wanted one in the 50s, and I'd like to take this with me in my time capsule. But can I cheat a little bit? Because one of my other choices was going to be a wind-up gramophone. Can I combine it maybe with Well, a, I think that's it, yes, a nostalgic items from that time. Well, because my brother and sister and friends, we used to be in the attic. My brother and I used to sleep in the attic in Bradford in this sort of very cold house. And we used to have this wind-up gramophone. I'd play old sort of parlophone, usually mm. classical stuff. And I'd quite even like to take a little radio, maybe a crystal set. So it's a little package I'm throwing up here. Okay. That, that would have been three things in one. <laughs> this is the coronation issue, but looking at some of the programs here, if I can... I, oh, the point about this is, Mike, is that I love the radio. I grew up with the radio, and I knew the Radio Times off by heart. I knew exactly what was on any light programme, not so much Radio 3, third, it's called the third programme, mm. but Home Service which is more serious and with plays on light programme, was variety and music, and third programme was classical. But mm. I knew, certainly on the light programme and the home service, what was on at any time of day. So later, in, later years, I'd know when Journey into Space was on or Dick Barton, 
And then the answers, of course, it was a forerunner. I remember all this, you know, and mm. I used to sit in the kitchen. Now, we had a, an old range sitting in the kitchen, and in the winter it was lovely. I had this lovely cold fire, and I'd sit there if I was reading or particularly listening to the radio and see images in the coal fire, fire burning in the kitchen. It was very nice. The trouble was we had to light this fire in the summer as well to get hot water. <laughs> but that was my life growing up in the 50s. Even more curious than that, and I thought everybody lived like this, there were two families. My father came out of the army and he wanted to rent a house. And with another army friend, two families moved in. In the kitchen, they had their own cupboard, stove, or cooking range, or what do you call it, their own table. And we we ate separately, not all together. It was like just two families living there. And to me, that was normal. That's how I grew up for several years. How extraordinary. Auntie Hazel, mm-hmm. she was British. I didn't rest all many years later that Uncle Ken was also a mid-European, I think Austrian, and uh, but he he spoke really good English, uh, so I didn't know until years later that he's also like my father, a refugee. And they had when we moved in two two girls, Evie and Junie, and I was there with my I was born there, and then eventually my sister came along. So we all lived there. There's two families, one bathroom, shared a bedroom with my brother. One time, this is, we nearly caused a fire in the house because my brother lit a firework at our persuasion. We persuaded my brother light a sparkle, light a sparkler. And one of the sparks got the fireworks, which we didn't notice, and everything blew up. <laughs> Smoke came out the front door, and, the, and the, the third child had been born. There was a baby upstairs, and my uh, my mum was coming up from the hairdresser, or my auntie Hazel was coming. And, oh, what am I doing? Anyway, so this is Radio Times, 19, what they say, May the 31st to June the 6th, 1953. Now, just, just an opening anywhere. Yes. Yeah. Right. On a Sunday night on the light programme, Grand Hotel with the Palm Court Orchestra. I mean, I remember when I was supposed to be. Oh, children's are. I love children's are. So this this will be wonderful in my time capsule. So do names crop up in that that years later you actually coincided with? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There are names here. Like I, I was looking at it yesterday, for instance, Denise Breyer. Now, I, I have to know, she was Nicholas Parsons' first wife. Uh, did you know that? Yeah, no, I didn't know that, no. Yes, I met my idols. I met my idols years later. Years mm. later. I'm just trying to see, uh, what's my line here? Elizabeth <laughs> Allen, Jerry Desmond, Gilbert Harding, Naaman, Andrew to see Fair Play. That's TV. Now, yeah. I'm really looking at the radio, the home service, Jack Train. Variety Playhouse with Vic Oliver. And I love Vic Oliver because he was also Viennese, like my parents, you see. Right. On the bill of Variety Playhouse, it was 11.55 in the, yeah, in the morning, 55 in the morning, was Hermione Gingold, Max Wall. It's funny, isn't it, but you think of Max Wall as being very visual. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, on the radio, again, Children's Hour. Now, in Children's Hour, there's Auntie Vi, Auntie Doris, Uncle Trevor and Uncle Herbert. And I was in Children's Hour. In later years, Auntie Doris was Doris Gamble. Uh, Uncle Trevor was Trevor Hill, who was the producer. Uncle Herbert was Herbert Smith, also a producer, Herbert Smith. Mm. Auntie Vi, do you know who Auntie Vi was? No. Violet Carson. Oh, my God. Later in Coronation Street. Yeah. I joined this crew in later years. I was probably about 14 or 15. And let me tell you, I think there's various thrills I've had in my life, being on Broadway and chips and everything. Um playing Fagin for the first time at the Albrecht Theatre on the old Sean Kenny set. Oh, it's unbelievable seeing my name. I mean, this when I left RADA, you know, when I was at RADA, I think I saw Ron Moody and Oliver three times in one week. The thrill was going on the train to Manchester, going to Piccadilly, where the BBC was, and walking in to Broadcasting House. 
I felt, I can feel it now. It was the most exciting thing. And not only that, I would go in, come out, go in again, let some people could see me going in to Broadway. And we did it live, you know, children's hour live. <laughs> very, very exciting. About 14, 15, 16, that, that age. Yeah. So your childhood then sounds crowded, but fun. A lot of fun in my childhood. I was good at primary school. My whole life changed when Mrs. Hartney, now this is at primary school, I was about seven, I think. Mm. Mrs. Hartney, we're going to do a play. We're doing a potted version. Who knew what a potted version? Of A Midsummer Night's Dream. George Layton, you're playing Puck. Eddie Wright, I remember the name, Eddie Wright, you're playing Oberon. Margaret Bowie, you're playing Titania. (laughs) And my mum, who really was a working mum in Bradford, could never get anybody to look after me. I think I had that probably ADHD or something. I was hyper. And she says, Mm. as soon as I started acting, I played Puck, and I was only seven years old, I calmed down. I just calmed down and became a reasonable human being. (laughs) From then on, I mean, no wonder I'm knackered now at the age of... I was so driven. I was so driven. That's all I wanted to do from the age of seven, I wanted to be an actor. It concentrated you then? Oh, absolutely. And as she said, I became an easier person to look after. People would, you know, I think I was just a frantic little, didn't know what I wanted to do, you know. No, no. But was that um, was that encouraged at school or you said you didn't have a good time uh, at, at secondary school? No, it wasn't. I, 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 but all my energies as I grew older, I mean, I'm going to, when I went to grammar school, 11, 12, 13, 14, I was never a good student, but all my went on acting. So, yes. Uh, if you were going up to Manchester to go to the BBC at, what, 14, 15, did you say? Oh, yeah, so I, you know, the train. I got the train. I got the train, the, uh, I think it was probably Foster Square in Bradford. There's two stations. And you said you were doing rep before you went to Radley? Well, right? what happened was, when I was at Lillycroft Primary School, the headmaster was Mr Beck, and he said something that was going to be thrown back at me for years. He said, he said to my dad, Mr Layton, George is the brainiest boy in the school. That was me. Right. Point of acting, that wrecked everything because I did no more work after that. <laughs> my dad would say, brainiest boy in the school. <laughs> you know, because after that, I just, you know, it was just acting. I, I love, and I, in later life, I loved rehearsals. I couldn't wait to get back to rehearsals. As a professional actor, I loved it every day, adored mm. it. There was a passion. There was a passion. The funny thing is, like, you know, you, you meet people, or you, people say, oh, could you talk to my son or daughter? And they say, yeah, I wouldn't mind being an actor or a, a fancy bit. It's like a drug. You know what it's like. If you, yeah. you can't say, I wouldn't mind it. Or I wouldn't. You're going to want it with such a passion that it almost wrecks your life, I think. Yeah, it? yeah. It's no good. Also, that thing that some people say, and I've done that thing, I'm sure you have, where you talk to young people about it, and you say, who would like to be an actor? And lots of people put their hands up. You say, no, do you want to be an actor or do you want to be famous? And they go, oh, well, I'd like to be famous, you know, be an actor and be a famous actor. And you go, no, yeah. so what you want is fame. Because if you want to do that, don't become an actor. The chances of you becoming famous are very small. Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And, uh, you know, and that, you know, I won't deny it. When I, when I was first recognised, I think actually I'd been in an episode of, of The Likely Lads. And that's another story. But quickly tell you, I auditioned in 1964, only two or three years out of drama school. Mm. Uh, I, I got some experience on TV. I did a series called Swizzle Week, which gave me my first long experience of TV. So I've got so many stories to tell you. <laughs> that was very, a lot of luck. I've, I've got this guardian angel who looks after me, I'll tell you. Anyway, I went to see Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet. Mm. Now, yeah, I don't know if you remember the background of the Lackalers, was that Dick was a trainee director, went on the BBC trainee course, and he'd, he and Ian had written this little play that 
which is part of his course. And they said, mm. it was serious. Right. So I got the Jimmy Bowen part, and I think I did quite well. But they said, we're too inexperienced. We just can't risk, risk it. But tell you what, George, we won't forget you. We'll write a part in for you. Right. They did. Oh. I didn't think that would happen. I didn't think, I really didn't think it would happen. So I got the part of Mario, the hairdresser, in the old black and white first series. Mario, the hairdresser, went out with Jimmy Bowen's, you know, Terry's colleague's sister. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he takes him out for a pint. His real name's Ernie from Hull. Anyway, so that was a big, break, a big break for me, a big break for me. I don't have to get on to that. So. That was a big series, wasn't it? Oh, you. The first series of Black and White. It was, my episode was called The Suitor. So uh, that was in 64. Uh, getting into TV was really, really hard. It was. I'm sure you experienced this yourself, chicken and egg situation. If you haven't got experience, well, exactly that. I didn't get the Jimmy Bowen part. First of all, I wouldn't have been anywhere near as good as Jimmy Bowler, but also I said, well, you're too inexperienced. How do you get the experience? So I was very lucky. Uh, I think one of the first jobs I did get in TV, proper jobs, was a play called The Other Man by Giles Cooper, the longest TV play ever written, starring Michael Caine, Sean Phillips, and I got this part of Private Root, Granada Television, and um, this is the part was all the way through. I said, oh, fantastic. Well, you did yeah. It was in the beginning, it was in the middle, it was in the end. Right? <laughs> it was a huge prestige thing to be in. Michael Kenner had just done the Ipcris file and um, what's that? Yeah. So it was, it was quite, a, quite a big thing to uh, be involved with. So that gave me some experience. Yeah, it's fabulous. And of course, there were lots of plays that were done at that time that were live. Oh, I was in them live. I did the 30 Minute Theatre was a wonderful play by a lady called Julia Jones, directed by a lovely lady called Mary Ridge, who did employ me a lot. She liked me. And it was called The Spoken Word. And it was Polly James. You did the live version of Polly James. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lovely, lovely actress. And I'm her boyfriend. I can't remember my own character's name. Uh, (laughs) John Paul, a lovely actor, and Diana Coupland. So it was a four-hander about a couple who refused to speak to each other and spoke through the daughter, the spoken word. This boyfriend comes along and doesn't understand it. So weird. But I remember it was lifetime. It was nice to come on a bloody scooter or something. I don't know if I wheeled it or rode it. And the most thing about live telly, I did a couple of 30-minute theatres, was I was terrified. I'd have a brainstorm and be abusive. Like, you know, use the four-letter word and just go mad. (laughs) I don't know why it's the difference between being nervous and being frightened. Oh yeah, terrifying. I've done a bit of live telly in my time. People do it all the time. They do presenting and things, but of course that... I've done that. But you've got actual lines to say, and they're in a certain order, and other people relying on them. It's very difficult, isn't it? Of course, there's a famous story. I wonder if you remember this. It's just come, there was a, 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 I think it was an armchair theatre that was live, and um, one of the actors died during the transmission. Oh, my word. And the actors had to talk around it, do his line thing, and they went on. My God, that's amazing. Do you remember, though, as a child, was it made clear to you? Did you get any impression from your parents? Because they must have lost everybody they knew. It's very curious. My mother had two brothers, Peter and Hans. One of them committed suicide because... No, first one actually died of tuberculosis. I believe he caught it. My grandfather's sanatorium was for people with tuberculosis, and I think he might have caught it at the sanatorium. Sadly, I didn't talk to my parents enough. They didn't want to talk about it. Of course they didn't. They were, you know. So... so all the family nearly went, all the family. So Peter died of tuberculosis, and Hans committed suicide, partly, I think, the loss of his brother, but more the impending Anschluss. Yeah. I'll be writing about this, mm. but it's a great sadness to me that I didn't get much. My dad, dad wouldn't talk about it. Why would they talk about it? No. 
No, in a way, they would have felt, why would we burden you with it? But what I'm amazed at is that how did they cope with losing two sons like that, my grandparents? It's an extraordinary, extraordinary character. It's very interesting. Yes. I think it would be an interesting book. I mean, Yeah, yeah. And then there's also that question, isn't that, George, of, of often in those cases, people have that survivor's guilt. Why am I still here? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I think I've got imposter syndrome. I can't believe the luck I've had sometimes. I say I, I do believe I had a guardian angel looking after me. You know, the, mm-hmm. I mean, many roles. I think, well, why didn't I get that? Why didn't I get that? One of the great things that happen as you get older is not being as ambitious as you were. I don't yeah. have to be. I don't have to be. I was never ambitious in a nasty way. I was always pleased my friends did well. But I do a show with Robin Asquith. So I don't even read about it on Twitter. Yes, um, I have, yeah. The two of you, I should imagine. Yeah. It's brilliant fun. Yeah, we've already done two or three now. And I started the last excuse me. I started the last one saying, you know, look, you love us hearing talking about Richard Sullivan and Robert Powell and all these friends. And I said, don't, you know, we've all grown up together. I said, don't kid yourselves. When they all got jobs, we weren't that happy. We thought, oh, why wasn't it me? Why wasn't it me? <laughs> and I, I, I quoted, I quoted a couple of Gore Vidal lines. One was um, something like, success is not enough. Others must fail. So, <laughs> the other thing is, every time a friend has success, something within me dies. <laughs> I think we were a bit like that. We were. One of the beautiful things about getting older, as I am, is that I love praising my friends. I love it when, I mean, for instance, I did, I did a tribute to Robin. I said, Robin, you've had a great, you did Strike, and he did a beautiful performance there, and you're doing well. And, you know, and it, uh, when you're young, you think, well, sod him. You know, uh, yeah. One of the nice things about getting older is he, I love writing to actors and saying, even actors I don't know, and say, I heard it a reading you did on an audio tape, you know, when my wife and I travel across Spain, we listen to these plays and audio tapes, and you think, well, this, I never heard of this actor. What brilliant reading it was. I mean, yeah. So, and I love actually telling people I really love their work. And the joy also is that if you get contemporaries and suddenly they get a job that, I mean, I've just spoken to a friend of mine who's just got the job of his life in his 60s, and it's, it's a transformative part. And you go, well, isn't that wonderful? Because not only is it brilliant for him, what a wonderful thing to get, but also you think, well, that could still happen to me. Yeah, you see, well, there's dreams, you see, Mike. You've got to... They never but, go. But, you know, I mean, you know, when you're young, you know, from, like I was in Doctor in the House, you know, five young guys all vying for the best, you know, and I'm very inventive, I tell you. So I don't think I was always popular with my ad-libs and things. So I don't... <laughs> but... I don't think I've ever been unkind, but what I'm saying is, you know, I was all my ears to the ground, and people have said to me when I was, you know, with the old BBC actor, and God, look at George Layton working the room. It's not a very nice thing to say, but I'm enthusiastic, and I, you know, I love meeting, I love talking to people, I love, whether it's the dinner lady or what, you know, but. So I don't feel I'm working the room. I hope it's not. Mm. It's not very nice, does it? But, no, I've been accused of that. Yeah. But actually, I just like people. I like meeting people. And I'm excited. I mean, you talk about the excitement of turning up at the BBC. I don't think that ever really leaves no, you. Never. Every time, you know, I don't get many job offers now, honestly, because I'm not looking. <laughs> seriously, I don't even tell my agent when I'm going away, because I'm not that... And you can guarantee whenever I book a holiday, I get a job offer every bloody time. And I've arrived in place and I arrived in Sri Lanka a year ago. And Simon says, oh, can you do this um, self-tape? There was casualty, actually. But mm. we digress. And let's go back to the radio times of my radio days and living in Bradford. I was so, I loved growing up in Bradford. I loved, and I've written three collections of short stories. Mm. Clearly, it's Bradford, a base. It's a northern town, post-war and they were written for adults, by the way, but they're still published for children. My first books so have been in print for over 50 years, you know. Wow. 
amazing. It's amazing. Amazing. Did you only leave Bradford when you went to drama school then? Yes, I left when I was 18. I mean, failed. Oh, gosh. I wanted to go on at 16 because my father said, oh, yeah, too young. Well, 18-year-old going to London, an 18-year-old was like a 14-year-old. Honestly, I was so, so naive and inexperienced. And mm. how I survived, I don't know. <laughs> I told you, I did. I, I, I am one of the few actors you'll meet at my age. I, I did Twice Nightly Rep. Twice Nightly. Oh, wow. I was at the Breakfast Week Playhouse with this amateur stuff, and they were allowed to use certain amateurs. This was um, Harry Hansen's Court Players. Does it mean anything to you? It doesn't, that, no. Harry Hansen's got some funny stories here. So <laughs> help me, because this will all be my uh, autobiography when I get back. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and um, there were some old actors and they said, oh, George, if you, you know, if you want to come for tea in the interval between shows, come up and see me in my dressing room. I, just, mm. I said, oh, my. Oh, How lovely. They were so friendly to me. Of course they were friendly. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell you the number of times my wife has said that to me. Well, of course they're being friendly. They fancy you. Yes. What? Oh. Oh, oh this, this lovely stage manager. I, I, can, I know his name. I'm not going to say it. And he was sweet. And he's a, but he, he, don't forget, homosexuality was illegal. You know, it's illegal. It's a criminal offence. Yeah, terrible. This, this guy, let's call him, oh, it doesn't matter. He was called Bill, but he lived near me and walk home and chat. And one time, coming for coffee, and he, and he brought his nudie magazines of girls. And then, then he made a pass at me. I thought, oh, my God, I'm 16. You know, I'm terribly upset by it. But, you know, I've been very lucky. There's nothing wrong with being naive. I look yeah. back to being naive and wish yeah. I were more naive now. Yeah. And yeah. I still have a sense of a certain naivety about me, which I, I'm sort of rather proud of, I think. Yes, I, 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 I still naive. I think my kids are much wiser than I am, honestly. Yeah. There's lots of stories like this, lots yeah. of stories. Yeah. Lovely. Well, we're going to put, for the first thing then, I'm going to put in a wind-up gramophone, maybe yeah, well, even a crystal set, and then we're going to put in that Radio Times from that time. Yeah, the Radio Times, and it makes lovely reading. Uh, honestly, I have to give this back. It's quite a, you know. And just round this little say, I used to love listening to the radio. I still do, as I told you. But I never forget hearing, it used to be called Wednesday Curtain. I've got an amazing memory. You know? Wednesday <laughs> Curtain Up. Wednesday Curtain Up was a, a play, and I'd listen in bed, and I listened to Night Must Fall by Emily Williams with Richard Burton playing Danny, and I, oh god, I was terrified. So I remember those kind of things. I, I think the radio is just wonderful. Grew up on radio. I did radio in Manchester for a Children's Hour. I did uh, plays over there, and then I worked for a wonderful producer, and when I was from about sixteen onwards, called Alfred Bradley. Oh, I, I did a play called. Um, it was my first time at RADA in the Christmas break after being my first time at RADA. Went up to do um, a play called um, There is a Happy Land by Keith Waterhouse. I tell you, was in it. There was uh, Henry Livings, who was an actor writer, Peter Adamson, who was on Coronation Street, Jennifer Moss, who was in Coronation Street, Robert Powell, that's when I first met Robert. He was on his. Wow. He was at Manchester Grammar School. There's a young boy called David Jones playing the lead. That was the second lead, that was the baddie. And uh, David was playing the sort of little boy on the housing estate, David. Well, he did become. David, he would say, I want to be a jockey, I want to be a jockey. Well, he became Davy Jones of the Monkeys. <laughs> yeah, that was, that, was my, that was a radio production I did for Alfred Bradley. Wonderful, wonderful producer. And also helped, helped me in my writing, by the way. I showed him a story that during that production, I wrote it my first term at RADA. It's called The Gang Hut. And I wrote it in third person. And Alfred said, put it in the first person. What's the key to all my style of writing? There were no he says, she says, very sparse writing. And I sold it. Well, I met a girl from school on the train going up to Bradford. And she said, I'll type it out for you. Lovely. She gave it to her boss 
for Hazel Luthwaite, who was the producer of Morning Story. I didn't know that. She didn't know who she worked for. And that's how I saw my first story. Still published today. Still wow. published. So you started writing that early? I wrote as a hobby in 1960, and my first time at RADA. Yeah. Wow. And um, I, I dabbled at writing after I left RADA. I dabbled at it. I did sell my first play. I wrote, oh, I wrote the story. Oh, what happened was uh, I, I, I used it as an audition piece for Woman's Hour, and the producer, Virginia Brown Wilkinson, said, well, it'll be a nice story. Who wrote that? I said, well, I wrote that. I said, well, write four more. We'll do it as Woman's Hour serial. Oh, okay. Anyway, eventually I wrote five stories. It didn't happen in two minutes. I had to write no. five stories. They're all, they're all still published today. First series. I read them, actor-writer, double my income. Lovely. They were in for adults. It's about to bring back memories of their childhood for them. It's mm. all narrated by an, a, a, an unnamed narrator. And uh, they said, well, let's do five more. So five more, you know, and that's how my story, that's how my writing started. I never considered myself professional then, but then I sold a play to um, 30 Minute Theatre Live called Home Is Where You Hang Your Hat. And that was directed and produced by the wonderful Innis Lloyd, who died tragically too. A wonderful man, lovely, lovely man. So I was very lucky. Mm. And so 1970, I think, was the first TV show I sold. But then after that, I started writing Doctor in the House. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan Lynn and I were both in it. He left. Uh, but we had the same literary agent and um, tried to write it together. Anyway, so there we are. That's uh, We're covering a lot of stuff there, and I hope you can make sense of it. But um, I'm sure we will, but let's have a look at what you put in for the second thing then. Right, time to take an ad break. We'll be back with more from George Layton in a moment. See you then. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome back to part two of my time capsule with George Layton. Okay, let's find out what else he'd like to have in his time capsule. Right. This is where it gets a little bit self-indulgent. I think for number two, there's a photo uh, of me playing my first part, playing Puck. The reason I want to put this photo in there, along with a couple of other photos I'll come to, 
is because not so much it's about me, well, it is, it's because my mother made the costume I'm wearing, which were velvet horns, <laughs> a brown velvet tunic and velvet pants, but they were made out of our, or some curtains at home, and my mother made my costume. And is that you on stage throwing a girdle around the earth? Yeah, well, what I had to do then was jump up in the air, and Mr. Killerby in the wings would catch me and hold me up so it looked like I was flying. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I remember it was Mr. Killerby. And the Mr. Killerby, Mr. Jam, I'm sure it was Mr. Killerby, tall man. And he, he, he so I, I, I had to jump into the wings, and so my feet was, it was rather good. I was quite inventive. Brilliant. My parents were always very supportive of me, wanted to be an actor, even though my school suffered terribly. Mm. Uh, I was so, so focused and driven. As I say, I did plays at the Bradford Civic Play. I was very, very famous amateur theatre. I mean, people from there, from Bradford, that's great. William Gaskell, Tony Risson, the film director, all based in Bradford, uh, Billy Whitelaw, Brian Bedford, who was a very famous actor, who went to America, Brian Bedford. But uh, mm. the person who sort of inspired me, I think it was, uh, uh, I used to go to drama school. I, I just lived for Saturday morning drama school, big man. I loved mm. it. Loved it. And uh, then I was in amateur productions there and walked with a little school there. My, oh, I loved it. And the, the, the teacher was Walter Williams, a very, very nice. He really encouraged me. And I think he encouraged me because he was a teacher, but he regretted, I think, never taking the plunge and becoming an actor, as many people do. Yes. Yes, they want yeah. to be an actor, but they just can't do it. They can't do it. And I think he really always very supportive, very, very supportive of me, and a good director, nice actor, and he was a very, very good mentor for me. Uh, who was it encouraged you to go to drama school, or did you just decide that yourself then? Um, well, I think it was me. I mean, I wanted to leave home. I, I kept going in. The, before the stage, there was, a, there was also a theatre journal called The Performer. I remember applying to go to Birkenhead, for, I think it was called Children's Theatre Argyle, Theatre Argyle, Birkenhead. And my dad said, you, you can't leave home yet, you can't do it. <laughs> I, I, I work, I, so I worked for Harry Hansen's Court Players. You never heard of Harry Hansen? No, sadly. Well, he was quite famous impresario in the North. Funny thing about Harry Hansen was that I never met him, but the stories are he'd wear these terrible wigs. <laughs> and an actor came to see him for a pay rise. He whipped off his red wig and put on a grey one and said, You're driving me grey, you're making me grey. You know, <laughs> his court players were big, more than, you know, twice nightly. We'd go up at 5.45 and then at 8 o'clock, I think. So did twice. And I was at school at the same time, can you imagine? <laughs> No wonder your school works. Yeah, exactly. So I did plays then. Oh, some wonderful stories. Well, I, mean, I got quite big parts actually. You know, I played Teddy Boyne, did the Alhambra for the Alhambra. Very I did the King and I there. Played oh wow! Prince Tudor Longcorn. That was that was actually the year before I went to drama school. Mm-hmm. I think I must have been about seventeen when I played Prince Tudor Longcorn. I dyed my hair black. I didn't want to wear a wig. I had my hair dyed black. A wonderful part because he he's got the marks of some of his children. Mm. And they had a professional director come to do this called Edward Royce Senior. And we were rehearsing this thing, and I was doing my acting. Somebody told me afterwards, he said, This boy's got something. Oh, that's lovely to know, isn't it? Yes, fantastic. Well, not surprising, though. I mean, uh, you talk about it, you know, and then I went to RADA, which uh, that's a rather exclusive club, going to RADA. I never tried for any other drama school. Right. Um, the only time I went down to London to drama school was with an elocution teacher. Actually, she helped me enormously with my audition pieces. I'd never given her credit for it. She was called Pauline Lund. I don't think she was much older than I was, actually. She had a little room she hired, and she was really helpful to me. And I always feel bad. I've never sort of 
given her the credit for really helping me a lot. Let me tell you, I had fantastic parents. I mean, you know, you can you imagine come from quite a privileged background, come as refugees, baby in arms. And my dad never earned a lot of money, poor chap. I mean, I, I loved him dearly. I, did, I, I, I mean, he was amazing. My mother and father were, she was the extrovert. She was quite a sort of prima donna in a way and great style and taste, always half full. Oh, she took in German students. She had never any, um, no hatred, no, no. She took mm. in German students. I got all my energy from her. She, you know, mm. always held her head high. She, you know, we were one of the poorer Jewish families in Bradford, let me tell you. We never had a car, but she made friends. She'd get a lift and made lifelong friends from somebody. Oh, could you, darling, could you run me down to town centre there? And um, when she died... There was a celebration of her life at the town hall. I, th I think it was just wow. never happened before. She was an important figure in the town. My dad was more introvert. The ladies loved him. He was a wonderful dancer, beautiful handwriting, very neat. On his side of the bedroom, everything neat, handkerchief folded, everything neat. My mum's side, complete mess. Complete <laughs> All my girlfriends used to love my dad. My, my very first girlfriend in Bradford onwards. But remembers my dad saying, you know, darling, I'm so right. It's a, there are 50 magazines a month coming in this house and none of them ever leave. You know, <laughs> it's really untidy. Say, my study is like Bradford. You know, it's very untidy, but she was she was wonderful. So tribute to mum, and she made this... They, they both always encouraged me. They were always... I'm very proud of me. What was their name when they left? Lurvy. L-O-Umlaut-W-Y. Right. He became Freddie Layton. Yeah. They all supported me, very encouraging, and... Um, and all my collections of stories are all based on sort of sort of memories. I mean, well, you know, there's a school report one, which I based on my own school report. I, can't, yeah. I had it somewhere. George is capricious and dilettante. <laughs> That's not bad, is it? You know? No, but understands long words. <laughs> I had a German master. He made my life a misery because he was Jewish. And he picked on me because he didn't want to be seen to favour the Jewish boy in the school. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I should have spoken spoke better German. Now, my parents spoke German. I, I replied in English. Like, I understand German. but mm. And he said to me, he said, Leighton, you are so thick-skinned. And I said, thank you, sir. I thought it was a compliment. Yes, of course. How thick-skinned can you get? <laughs> he was even more exasperated. I thought he was complimenting me. Yeah. <laughs> amazing people, though. It's an amazing... The very, very few people who got out, they're extraordinary people. See, my dad was in the Pioneer Corps, but I think I think they were rewarded by saying, well, you've got British nationality, you can change your name. As it happens, on my birth certificate, I am George Michael William Lurvey. I am still Lurvey. Right. When I got my first job abroad, I didn't go abroad till I was in 1963 when I got into chips with everything by Arnold Wesker. So I had to get a solicitor to attach a letter to say, this is to say that George Lurvey is now George Layton. And it's still attached to this. I took on my birth certificate. Wow. I wonder if I took it off, I could get another birth certificate in the name of Lurvey. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> now I want to get an Irish. Well, I might try and use my Viennese roots to get a sort of a, a European. Fantastic. Well, we should move on. But let me just finish, because, again, I'm cheating a little bit, because I said, oh, photos at Puck, and, and you rightly said, and kindly said, it's not about me, it's really about all my bad. But I would like to add to these two mm. photos. If I could take you around, I would. When I first came to London in 1960, and I found all that area around about Wyndham's Theatre and all around there. I thought, oh, I found an area people don't know about kind of thing. <laughs> but if you go down every set and I'd look at Ron Moody, not not the film, after the stage production, I went to see it, I think, three times in one week. And 
I always wanted to play it. I always wanted to play it. And I played it twice. I played it the first time in 1979 when I was far too young for Cameron McIntosh. Mm-hmm. I'd done a play to Cameron before in 1976, a, a tour. And uh, I got the part in 79, taking over from Roy DeTrice. Mm-hmm. This was the revival that Roy Hudd created, Fagan. Then Roy DeTrice, then me. And I did it for a year. I've got the front of house photo just outside this study here. And then in 95, I did it at the London Palladium completely different i mean I, I was doing it the same way and they didn't want that i remember lionel bar sitting in my dressing room saying don't play it too jewish sort of things to say but in 95 i played a very different way much more on the balls of my feet and never very tall uh, but the first time i played it was like a little sort of rat running around the sewers you know yeah yeah anyway kind of take those photos in my time capsule they're quite big actually they were front of house photos one from the palladium and one from the Albury theater it's just nicely bookends with puck i'm gonna have a little think about it fair enough i think i better think it out again i'll take them okay thank you very much there we are do you want number three now yeah so let's move on and go for number three well number three again is to do with my childhood um the best days for me were i went to school to bellevue grammar school I loved to play football at lunch, but I had to go home and feed the dog, Kim. And so if I played football, I literally ran home, ran home, let the dog out. Did that. But I'd see the lunchtime post. You know, you had two posts in those days, morning mm. and before you went to school probably, and then lunchtime. And if there was a letter on the outside that said Bradford Civic Playhouse, oh, gosh, it was sex excitement. And later in life, if you said Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in red, oh. it was so exciting. So... The Civic Playhouse was where I had my drama school lessons, Walter Williams, and um, doing plays there, hopefully. And the first play I was offered was to be one of the villagers in a play called Tea House of the August Moon. <laughs> remember that play? No, I don't know. You remember that play? Beautiful, it was a beautiful name. It was a film with uh, Marlon Brando, actually. Oh. And I was, dear George, we're delighted to say, would you play one of the villagers? I don't think he had a name in Tea House. I was like, Oh, my day was made, you know. <laughs> so I go to rehearsals and be in tea house and always move. And uh, I did lots of plays there, but that was one of, the, I think, the first one. I think it was the first one. And um, I could still remember, I had two lines, but I remember my first line was, Mina Gakonanka Yorichaya Gaisoda. I had to learn that. Mina Gakonanka Yorichaya Gaisoda. It means we want a tea house. <laughs> so that was my first. And I'd like to take, I haven't got it actually, but. Maybe somebody would find out the programme of Tea House of the August Moon into my time capsule. Mm. Because it's the first, you know, I did lots of plays there. I did um, a play called Camino Real by Tennessee Williams. Uh, I saw, do you remember the famous producer Peter Dews? Peter Dews. Yes. Well, he was from Bradford too, and he was in one of the plays. He he directed there a bit, but I think when he was professional, he came back to play, uh, he saw Inquisitor in St. Joan. I remember that very clearly. Mm. And uh, there were some bloody good actors there. Very good. And in Tea House of the August Moon was the actor that I would later, playing, playing um, what was his name? Sakini. That was it. Sakini was the main part. He was the interpreter. Mm. for the. Uh, it was the army out in Okinawa, wherever they were. Yeah, Okinawa, I think it was. And the villagers. And um, Jeffrey Byrne, who was this post office engineer, a very good actor, I thought he was. He played the lead. And then Ray Taylor, he was a producer. Now, if you wanted to get go to Central Coast and get somebody who looked a bit pervy, thick <laughs> bottle glasses, bald heads, sort of very sort of, you know, he was a nice man, don't get me wrong. And uh, he was the producer. And 
that we're going to have a last night party, I think in his house in Leeds or Huddersfield somewhere. And I said, oh, Ray, I don't think I can come. I'll never get home again. And, and he said in front of Geoffrey Byrne, he said, oh, don't worry, George, you can stay at my house. <laughs> Remember Jeffrey Bowe saying, you bloody well will not. <laughs> <laughs> you were oh, in a yeah. rather predatory society. Mm. I always had this instinct, and I, and I say I think I had a guardian angel always looking after me. I really believe that. So that was my first proper grown-up production. You never forget those, do you? You never, no. you never yeah. forget the thrill of being invited into an adult world. Absolutely, absolutely. And I remember sitting with grown-ups listening to the first LP of My Fair Lady, and every single yeah. round. You know, it's been about 1956, I think, or something like that. I can't remember when it was, 57, maybe. Mm. Oh, goodness me. Goodness me. It was wonderful memories. And what a thought that, you know, just 10 years after that, maybe a little bit more, yeah, just over 10 years after that, you're starring in the West End. Starring in the West End? Well, I suppose in 1963, I wouldn't say starring, I was at the Royal Court in chips with everything because we did three weeks at the Royal Court a week at the Golders Green Hippodrome, mm-hmm. and went out to Broadway. Oh, that was amazing. I mean, I, I haven't actually got any of that in my time capsule. I should. I did think about that. I mean, mm. for, maybe add the programme for that if you can find it, but um, yeah. in this thing. I chipped everything. Oh, fantastic. Um, first time I'd ever been on an aeroplane. And I used to look at the sky thinking, I can't believe we're going to be up there. How's it stay up there? I mean, I was, I was, you know, I was just coming up for 21. I've never, I've never been on a plane. I've been abroad only once. That was... mm. And that was at a time when the Royal Court was was just really bursting out with the, oh, all the most extraordinary well, things. Well, 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 you know, the original production was at the Royal Court and they went to the vaudeville. Mm. The, the original production with the Frank Finley. Yeah. Chips with everything. Did you know that Chips and everything? Do you yeah, know? I do, yeah. I got into it. John Dexter, the producer, terrified. His, his reputation scared the life out of him before I even worked with him. And he, <laughs> he was scary. He was scary. He did have whipping boys and determined it wasn't going to be me. My God. Uh, and Chris Timothy was in it. My friend Chris Timothy went on to great success in All Chris's Great and Small. Yeah, World. lovely Chris. Yes. Uh, yeah, you probably, have you interviewed Chris? You interview? I haven't. No, I ought to. You're no, right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll get in touch with him. Do, I'd love to. Well, Chris and I became friends in that. I, I was first military policeman and he was second. Doesn't sound like a great part. It wasn't a huge part, but it's a sickening scene because they intimidate and bully Smiler. First military, have you ever seen your mother naked? And then Ronnie Lacey only did it for a limited time. Ronnie was a lovely, died far too young. I love Ronnie Lacey. Uh, and uh, Barry Evans took over. Now, Barry Evans, very much part of my life, Broadway in 1963, I was in here we were on the Mulvey Bush a bit with him. And then, of course, I did Doctor in the House many years later. Mm-hmm. He played the lead. And then when he left or was sacked, I mean, he pushed them so far, because right? nobody's indispensable. They then got Robin Nedwell to replace Barry Evans. He mm-hmm. was number two to number one. And I became number two to Robin. So having left it, saying we don't, we don't need it anymore, we were drafted back in, changed my life, started writing and everything. Mm-hmm. And, that's another thing. So that was Broadway and chips and everything. I don't know. How well, Alan Doby. Now, Alan Doby, he had this quality, like he was sort of ignoring you almost. You know, you, I, you know I was in awe of him, actually. He sort of, I, I loved him. I liked him enormously. And this is 1963. He flew back on a Saturday night to get married and be back there on Monday morning. It was such a dangerous thing to do. Can you imagine? It oh, my word. Yeah. But what I found out with Alan was he had this sort of, it made you in awe of him because he was sort of uh, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a 
platform so much higher. It was because he was deaf in one ear. Half the time, he never heard you. And that <laughs> makes me so in his own sort of stratosphere. Yeah. But he, he played the Frank Finney part. I mean, Frank was lovely. I got to know him in later years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Alan Derby, look him up. He was a, a really, really good actor. Yeah. He was, flew home, got married, brought his young wife out. Yeah, That's was, brave, isn't it? Because, in fact, that would have been a oh, long flight. And not only that, by the time you got back, it was almost time to come back. Absolutely. Well, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God. Because we were out in Broadway when the Beatles were. Well, they in 1963. We all did these ads for the Beatles. I didn't even, I, I knew of them. It was when the Brits took over Broadway. I've got a photo somewhere. I'm, I'm really better keeping my own stuff. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you where the show's on Broadway. Or Luther with Albert Finney, who I got friendly with. Len Rossiter semi detached at the opposite, opposite me, which didn't succeed. The rehearsal with Alan Bedell by Jean Louis and mm-hmm. Jennifer Hillary was in it, where I was rather with. And Jennifer and I were in the same apartment block, just walking to the theatre. And when Kennedy was assassinated, we were all shattered. And um, I spent the evening with her, just watching the TV. And, oh, God, it was amazing. So this is the one. The Brits were on Broadway. So many plays. And there were others as well. And on in Broadway, all the theatres are linked. So I had a lot of time off. I'd, I'd go through the theatre next door and watch 110 in the Shade, which <laughs> is a musical version of... Um, who was the one who were Brings the Water, oh, based on a play, it was Robert Preston. Oh, wow, yeah. And it got theatre to theatre, you go around, make sure you got back in time for your next entrance. <laughs> That's amazing. Very exciting. That's an incredible thing to do. 21 years old on Broadway, I went to parties, became yeah. very good friends with Dudley Moore, very good friends with Dudley Really? Because he would have just gone out there after... Um, he did be on the fringe. On the fringe. And I, got, I, I was friends with Dudley Moore and Alan Bennett. So Dudley and I were quite close friends, and he tried to set me up with... That was quite so inexperienced, but he set me up with girls. I met this girl, Harriet, he tried to set me up with them. Years later, I met him, I said, what happened to Harriet? Oh, she became a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> and then for Jonathan Lynn and I wrote... We, we sold this series idea to Yorkshire Television about this genius guy, this genius musician who couldn't handle his private life. Mm. Oh, great idea. We sold it to Dudley Moore. Yeah, I'll be in it. We sold it. And when Dudley read the script, he said, I can't do this. It's so close to me. I just, his private life was a mess. He's a musical genius, and it never happened. No. And he was a musical genius, was he? Really was. Yeah, yeah. So it's a great day. So that, all right, that's uh, number three, wasn't it? Yes. And we're going to shove in the chips with everything, maybe. And even, maybe even an uh, uh, Oliver, which came much later. I'm happy to put a collection of programmes in there from your amazing career. Even a Harry Hansen court players. Yes, one, indeed. One called The Tattooed Lady. There's another story there. <laughs> Stay there for the biog. Okay. So there Brilliant. we are. How are we doing? We're doing very well. We've got two more to go. Two more to go. What's the one I've done? The last one? You can do it last or you can do it next. If you'd like to get rid of it now, you Let's can. Let's get rid of it now. Get rid of it and finish on a high. Is that drilling bothering you? Is drilling- no, as long as we know it's drilling. I always think of these things, if you say to the listener, this is George in his house, he's got builders. I highly recommend them. <laughs> I could tell you a funny story how I met Peter the Builder. Well, very quickly, I'll tell you. Go on, when my son was uh, 25, he's now 43, I think, he bought his first flat and um, we were going to take a bath out to put a shower in. Mm. We went to the bathroom shop down Finchley Road, chose the shower, and they had adverts for people, cards left. And so I rang this Polish guy called Eric, and we did a deal. And I'm clerk of works as he was working and I've got time on my hands being a writer and actor, of course. Yeah. So I got, to the, I got this flight. It must be at least 16 years ago. What's, what's 25 from 43? Um, 25 from 43. 
is 18. 18, right. So about 18 years ago then. Anyway, it's a long time ago. So I'm sitting there waiting for the builders to arrive. Two builders arrived. I didn't know who they were. And he said, I, I've come to do a job. I've come to do this Peter and then an older guy. I've come to do a job. I said, what? Who are you? You're not, you're not Eric? He said, no, I'm not Eric. I, but I do a job. I do a good job. He said, how well do you know Eric? I said, not well at all. He said, I am better. <laughs> <laughs> That's Peter downstairs now with his own family. He, was, he had no kids then. Uh, he's working downstairs. That's my Wow, building. how brilliant. <laughs> anyway, that's besides the point. So we're going to go now to number, well, I've got that was number five, but it's the one I'm discarding. So I'd like to get rid of it now. Yeah, do. Let's get rid of it. I'd like to discard Bellevue Grammar School, Bradford. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's not the one that exists now because that's a different building. Yeah. I don't mean that quite as narcissism, but they didn't like me. And I, I loved Bradford. I loved growing up there. I wasn't a great student. I was enthusiastic about theatre, but they didn't share my enthusiasm at all. Mm. I didn't get on with the headmaster there, Mr. Hitching. Hitch, he's called Scratcher. <laughs> uh, I got a great, uh, I tell you, the deputy headmaster, a Latin master, I think it was actually, was to- Tom Creed. He understood me. Tommy Dunwell, the history master, Again, storytelling, and I did like Latin from the point of view it was about words, and I appreciate it much more now. Mm. But Tommy Creon got me, so they were nice, but most of it was bloody awful. I hated it, and so I would. I don't want to get rid of my school days. Don't get me wrong. No, but Bellevue and I did not see eye to eye. No, there was shared premises with the girls' schools. So the only good thing he did for me, I met my first girlfriend, <laughs> Janet. There, my first crush, I met there, Janice. Oh God, I had a crush. I just, and I had a date with her once. She's never turned up. It, was, it broke my heart. Oh. And Janet, I went out with a couple of years. She loved my dad as well. And um, <laughs> so that's why I met her at, at the school, school dance. But uh, how can I put this? I don't want to get rid of the school. Of course I do. But maybe my memories of the, the bad memories of Bellevue Grammar School, they can be ditched. Yes. You would get whacked and hit. And... Oh, yes. Oh, the day, the day was no, no, unfairly with me, to be honest. I was bloody useless. I mean, <laughs> I wasn't a good student to teach, but they they didn't try and meet me. They didn't try and nurture what I was trying to do. Uh, you no. Know? I mean, even when, oh, I didn't tell you this. When I was about 14, 15, went down at this Bradford City Powers drama school, a wonderful producer called Vivian A. Daniels, very good TV and theatre regular producer, found me for a play called Red Rose for Ransom, and I was cast. And the school worked sure if they're going to let me off. Another boy from Blackburn Grammar School got the parts and I didn't. And then years later, my first season at the Broadway Theatre Coventry, Vimed A. Daniels offered me a part in a TV play and with great difficulty, I turned it down. I thought, no, I've got to do this theatre. Mm. And it was a very exciting time. 14, I was going to be on television. I couldn't believe mm. it. But not being very supportive to me yeah. and making it difficult if I'm going to have time off to do this marvellous play in Manchester. Yeah. I'm ditching Bellevue aspects of Bellevue Grammar School. Lovely. All right. We're going to put that in there. You can forget yeah. about them. Then they're never going to bother you again. I've got school photos in my bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've got one final thing you want to put in that you'd like to remember. Yeah. This is what I've been thinking. Do you know what I'm going to put in? I'm going to put a VHS copy of my dear friend Richard O'Sullivan, the actor, mm. his This Is Your Life. Ah. It was recorded on November the 27th, 1974. You can see it on, on YouTube, actually. Mm. Now, Richard was a pal of mine. He was in Doctor in the House, as you know, and Doctor in Charge and all that. And he played Bingham, and he was he was a joy to write for. But he was a very funny man, was he, Richard? Very funny, a little bit Ronnie Corbettish sometimes. Yeah. 
Leoff, a little bit like Jerry Seinfeld. Funny, funny, see, I, I worked with Jerry Seinfeld all this, and it just reminded me. But Richard played Bingham. He was a sneak and a nasty, but he took a special talent like Richard had to play this sort of, you know, your boots. Yeah. I'm better than you. And, I'm, you know, and I remember one scene I wrote where Barry Evans, the Michael Upton straight character, we were interviewing, I think it was Tessa Wyatt, actually. Um, yeah. we, were, we were the interview committee. So there's um, Michael Upton, that's Barry Evans in the middle. I wrote the script, by the way. I think I wrote it on my own, actually. <laughs> anyway, so Barry was in the middle of this committee meeting. Richard Sullivan to his right, mm. George Layton, Paul Collier to his left, to interview. Richard took the centre seat. Uh, Bingham. Bingham took the centre seat. That's some form of importance. Yes. Barry, Michael Upton, Barry Evans said, oh, don't miss. My character said, no, no, uh, Michael, you're heading, the, you're heading the interview committee. You should, you should be in the middle. And he wouldn't move, he wouldn't move. A little bit of genius writing by me, I think. I just <laughs> I took my chair and moved it to put him in the middle. So <laughs> Barry Evans yes. in the middle and Richard. And he, no, there's no way out of that. It was a clever little bit of business that he worked yeah, with. Yeah. And then we interviewed Tessa Wyatt for this part, for this part, for this job. And in fact, I adored Tessa. I still do. I'm in touch with her a lot. And I had a big crush on her. Mm, beautiful woman. Yeah. But she only, only had us for Richard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there. That's another story anyway. So I'm going to put his VHS, mm. This Is Your Life, Eamon Andrews. And if you look at it now, it's so sort of parochial, really. Mm. Richard had no idea. And I'd I'd been charged looking after him all afternoon after rehearsals. Now, the reason I want to put this in is because I then was estranged. I wasn't quite divorced Mm. from my first wife. It was not a happy marriage, but two lovely children. Painful time for me. And I'd somehow mentioned to her that, oh, they're doing this your life. I shouldn't have mentioned I think it was Wednesday, the 27th of November, 1974. She said, well, I should come, I should come. I know, Richard. I said, well, I don't know, I don't, I don't know how I feel about it. You know, we're, we're not together. and it, it's, bit, it's hard. It's, I don't feel comfortable. Anyway, in the morning, I remember it was ringing and saying, no, no, I, I don't feel right. I'm sorry, I was stood firm, went along on my own, and I, I didn't look great. I had my hair all, I was doing um, It Ain't Half Hot Man. You know, it was short back and sides. Mm-hmm. And anyway, what we used to do, you know, it's like a party. It's a, it's, yeah. it's a celebration. Mine was done down at Thames Television. That's another I, did, I was called many years later with my classball. Richard's was, I think, at the, um, where the Capitol building, Thames in um, Euston Road. So you, you do the show, you all come on, you say your stories, blah, 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 lovely time. Uh, and then you have a party afterwards and they replay the thing. And, and at that party, being a free agent because I was Australian. I was getting divorced. I wasn't quite divorced, but I was certainly not living like a monk. Mm-hmm. I see this beautiful, beautiful girl, gorgeous blue eyes, fantastic looking. And I'm chatting her up and I'm chatting another girl oh. called Janet up who works on the show. Janet stands up. She's about seven feet tall. <laughs> but I really, I really had eyes for this lovely, lovely girl with blue eyes, long blonde hair. And um, that was my wife. Uh. She was in a pretty foul mood, not with me, but she'd had her car towed away, her mother was down, she'd even been invited by the writer of This Is Your Life, Carl, come along, come along. So I calm, I said, I'm a car towed away, what am I going to do with my mother? Oh, my wife will go. Anyway, long story short, she was there, I was there, that was on the Wednesday, we went out on the Saturday, and we've been together ever since. And, and the mood I was in, Michael, let me tell you, I thought, oh, I'll never get married again, I had two children, I was very, mm-hmm. very broken up. I'm very lucky, I can compound. I can never say this word, Com- compartment- compart- compartmentalize. 
I can't say it. So <laughs> I did my work. It ain't half up my mind. I could do things like that, but I was breaking up inside. And I thought, I'll never get married again. Never, never, never. That's not for me. And um, that was in 1974. We got edgy. We got married in 77. But this year we'll be together 49 years. Uh, it, so that was fate. You know, because I had I said to my ex, well, oh, come on, I don't care. Uh, it wouldn't have happened, would it? It just wouldn't. You know, no, no. The yeah. serendipity of it is extraordinary, isn't it? Guardian angel. Guardian angel. Guardian angel looking after me. Honestly, I swear that. I swear that. <laughs> my darling wife, she's fantastic. Fantastic. What a, and that's why I would like that tape of Richard in there. Be nice to see it, maybe. He's still with us, isn't he, Richard? Is he, is he, he not is, home, isn't sadly, he? Sadly, I'm not divulging any. No, no. In fact, I've been ringing Tessa after I spent to you and trying to arrange. We try and go to. I haven't been since the pandemic because we couldn't go to care homes. But he's yeah, he's there, quite happy, you know. And I'm very, very fond of him. Very, very fond of him. And amazingly, Mike Yarwood, I think, is in is is there as well. I think amazingly, he's alive. Is he, is he alive? I don't think he's alive. Still. It's still alive, I think. Yeah. Oh, right. Isn't that amazing. Do you think about all those people, particularly yeah, yeah. from that time? You know, Dick Emery and all that, and you know, yeah. Morecambe and Wise, and you sort of go, well, of course, they're all gone. They're long gone. And Mike Yarwood, you clump him in. You think, oh, he must be, but he's not. One of my proudest moments was I was you go to these charity dues and dinners and showbiz met uh, Eric and Ernie, but Eric walking up to me, love your work. Ah, oh, wow, love your work. I don't know whether he meant writing or acting, but you know he said, "Love your work." That's, That's lovely. Fantastic. And talking about you know Albert Finney, for instance, I was on Broadway with Albert Finney, not in Luther. I was in chips, everything, but you know, we meet at parties and Georgia Brown. Well, Oliver was on Georgia Brown, was there, and you know, Clive Revel was playing Fagin in on Broadway, and he was in my first TV play, Clive Revel. So <laughs> things were out. But um, I went out with a girl called Grace Ann Lamberta. Oh, this was lovely. We always sort of went out, and, but who did she have eyes for? Albert Finney, didn't she? <laughs> anyway, years later, my dear friend Andrew Morgan, who used to direct Heartbeat, he had his anniversary. And at this party, I said to my wife, I said, I said, God, there's Albert Finney over there. Oh, God, because I was, he's my idol. Mm. I just adored Albert Finney when I was at RADA, you know. And I remember going to the Edinburgh Festival and seeing him there. So I said, oh, I'm sort of drifting over to sort of rub shoulders Albert Finney at this thing years and years and years later. And as I approached him, he said, hello, George. <laughs> wow. I was so thrilled, I can't tell you. I mean, I, I bet. I was so thrilled. Yeah. Well, I think that's about it, isn't it? I mean, I hope I haven't given you big editing problems. It's going to be really fun to listen to, I know that. Oh, I hope so. I find it wonderful, really, that from this amazing career of, as you say, 62 years as an actor, that the things that you really treasure are the beginnings, are the start of things. Without those, none of the other things would happen. Exactly. Thank you, George. I really enjoyed it. You know, whenever I listen to your others, I listen to a few... But uh, you know, when I was listening to David, David Morris, who I know, yeah, yeah, I like him enormously, and we have a good chat. And I was thinking, come on, I can't talk like that. <laughs> well, what am I going to talk about? He was so great interview, and it's down to you. You, 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 you are a very, very good interviewer. Bless you. You really are a good listener too. Say thank you to Hannah for introducing us. I will, of course. In fact, she rang just before, and I was about to say, "Well, guess what I'm doing?" But my wife picked up the phone downstairs. But tell her, say thank you very much, and it was lovely. Well, all my kids are doing well. The other daughter was a casting director. Don't forget Claudia Layton Casting. She's now a producer of Film Shoot. See what I mean? The dynasty, the Layton dynasty. But it was through her I got to work with Jerry Seinfeld. Wow. That's my next podcast. Do you ever do people twice? I could do very easily. 
Look, I'll come back and we'll do five from once your career starts. Yes, that's a very good idea. I think it'd be a lovely idea. Lovely. You've made it so easy, and I really feel I've interrupted and all this drilling going on, but uh, you've got to get the builder when you go. <laughs> you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, George Layton. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to find out more about some of the things George has been talking about for the last hour, you can always visit his website at georgelayton.co.uk. Yeah, he's very modern, where you'll find his blog and loads of other things. I hope you've had fun listening, of course. If you have, then please do rate this podcast and possibly even review it. And don't forget to subscribe so we can tell you whenever a new episode is available. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to Acast Plus, where they get this podcast ad-free. And they get a weekly behind-the-scenes podcast, My Time Capsule, The Debrief. Details in the description of this pod. Do follow and converse with me or My Time Capsule through Twitter slash X and, of course, Instagram or Facebook. It's always nice to hear from listeners and we do try to reply, I promise. The theme tune by Pastor P's Music is available on Spotify and this cast-off production for Acast was produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, I hope this episode with the amazingly youthful and energetic George Layton has made you determined to stay young and sprightly, as George has. Although, as he said himself, it can so often just be down to luck, or in his case, a guardian angel. I do try, of course, but things just wear out, don't they? I even have friends my age who are having things replaced. One of them had a new hip put in, actually, but he reckons they fobbed him off with a cheap one. He may be right, actually, because every time you press his head down, he takes a penalty. Yeah, like the players in Subutio. For all of you who are staring into the middle distance trying to work that joke out. Yeah, I thought I'd just throw in one more reference in this podcast that no one under 50 would understand. Stay young, everyone. Bye. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.